We all have potential, and that's something that we need to see in our children. No matter what they seem like, no matter what their behavior looks like on the outside, and it's something that we need to accept for ourselves and value in ourselves as well. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Parenting Translator newsletter and podcast. I'm so excited because this week I am here with Dr. Rena Bliss, and Dr. Bliss is a professor of sociology at Rutgers University. And she has a fascinating new book out called Rethinking Intelligence. So today we're going to talk about what it really means to be smart and how to raise quote unquote smart kids. Um, So Dr. Bliss, if you could please just first introduce yourself and let us know a little bit about your areas of expertise and what made you write this book. Yeah. So um, I'm uh, my name's Rena and I am a researcher, a scientist, an author um, of books mostly on genetics so thus far. And um, there's some genetics in this book as well. But um, I have been teaching um, for the last you know, couple of decades on health and illness and the relationship between our genes and our environments. And through the course of my research, I came to really focus in on a few really interesting topics, one of them being intelligence. And another one just related is learning and how we learn best. And so I'm a mom of three kids. I've got two kindergartners and one um, pre-K. And so like everything I learn, I'm always like kind of looking at my kids and, and my relationship to them and my role as a parent and all of that stuff, you know, kind of through the lens of, of what I know and what I'm learning from that experience of being a mom. Um, so I actually came at this this topic of intelligence and learning, not just from my role as first a student and then a an educator, but um, from my like far back past um, growing up as a kid in a kind of you know world in which we really were defining smarts as being something based in our genes, as being something completely inherited and like almost like set in stone. And so coming from that perspective, I was always interested in just kind of the science, what the science really would say about it if I were to look at it from a scientific standpoint and not just from whatever the culture was saying about intelligence. That That is so interesting. Um, and I also, you know, I always apply, I like how you said that you apply what you're doing to your everyday parenting because I also do that as well. And, you know, I'm always watching my kids and seeing how they learn. And I think it's so fascinating. Um, so to get us started, can you just tell me what the research finds, um, what does it really mean to be quote unquote smart? And why do you think that the conception that many people have about it might be wrong? So I'm going to start by just saying kind of what's wrong with our common sense notion of intelligence and smart, right? And then I'm going to go from there and explain, you know, what the research says. And so um, as I was saying, you know, we've really thought of intelligence up until now and being smart as something that's fixed, something that you can score someone on. You can just give someone an IQ test. You can give your kid an IQ test or your kid's IQ tests. And, you know, you can just say like, this is how smart they're going to be for the rest of their lives. And we've been doing this for centuries. So this isn't like a new thing. 
And in fact, you know, even though in the last, I'd say like about 50 years, there's been a lot of pushback against scoring kids and like branding them as being only this smart, nothing's really changed. In fact, people really invest and not just people, but schools, education systems here and around the world really invest in tests to find out that stuff. And the basis of all of that is just saying like, okay, I'm going to rank and compare, right? Like I'm going to say like of this pool of people, American children or whatever the pool is, this is how my kid compares to these other kids, you know? And so that's been this kind of dogma about intelligence and smarts that we've inherited from, again, centuries of bad science, in, in a sense, bad science. And so a lot of the ideas and even like the very format of the test came about in a time when we didn't have that much knowledge about our brains and not that much knowledge about our bodies. And we didn't actually know almost anything about DNA. So for, you know, all these centuries, we were just doing this. This is what we did. And when I was a kid, genomics, this, the field, this like field of our genomes and telling us like, you know, what is it really like in those little nuclei of our cells? Um, our, what does our DNA really tell us? All of that was just in its infancy. So we didn't know any of this stuff yet. Um, but, you know, since then we've learned that genomics really tells us the opposite. Our genes give us a really basic neural architecture or brain architecture in order to learn from our environments. So I like to define intelligence as learning from our environments. It's something that we all do, right? Um, and another thing about our genes is that they give us this, the brain architecture or the brain structure to be neuroplastic. And what that means in a nutshell is, you know, being able to create new connections in our brains and in our minds um, around new information, being able to really grow ourselves and go in any direction that we find interesting, being able to learn new things and learn from our mistakes. So all of that is really what we've learned from the science. I could go into like epigenetics and all that that's in my book, but I'm not going to go there unless, you know, you feel like your readers really need a little one-on-one on epigenetics. But basically the, the idea is just that we're all primed and set up, no matter how neurotypical or neurodivergent we seem, we're all primed and set up to learn something from our environments, right? And so, um, you know, whether you have like dyslexia or dyscalculia or you have, you know, dysgraphia or you have any like really an autism, anything, you are going to learn something from your environments in your own way. And so the science tells us that learning is really us using our intelligence. The science does not back up this idea that we are like, that we need to rank and compare each other. It does not back that up. And so um, I think that the really important thing for us to get from it and to like glean from all of this more recent science that actually can go into our, our bodies like really deeply in and look at our brains is that we all have potential. We all have potential. And that's something that we need to see in our children, no matter what they seem like, no matter what their behavior looks like on the outside. And it's something that we need to accept for ourselves and value in ourselves as well. So it sounds like you're saying that the research is really showing that our intelligence is not this 
um, fixed, you know, number or that's coded into our DNA that, you know, we have no control over, that it's a lot more complicated and it has a lot to do with how we are responding to our environment and that all of our brains are neuroplastic, meaning they can change um, based on different environmental inputs and different things that happen. So um, this is really making me think, so if intelligence is learning from our environment, how do we set up our environments for optimal learning? That's Does such, that make sense? Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a great question. And I mean, that's kind of where I went with it. You know, I had been studying the genetic side of things for a while and you know, the relationship between the brain and our genes and, you know, stress levels and all of this stuff. And um, that's the the epigenetics piece that, again, like, I'm not going to get deep into it. But basically, one of the things that we've learned from studying our genes is that um, there are parts of our strands of DNA that actually control whether our genes are turned on or off. And so those are responsive to our environments and to things like stress. And so when we are very stressed or when a child is stressed, our children are stressed, They, um, their genes basically, usually what happens is they don't turn on. It's like these genes that they're so lucky to have, we pass them on and you know they're saying like, go, go to work, get to learning, do your thing. And then we can't, or they can't even do it because stress is, is hampering their abilities to um, think. And so one of the things that we can do in order to set up the environment for optimal learning is to think of ways to reduce stress. That's where I was going with this, to reduce stress in our environments and in our kids' environments. Um, and that can be through the learning environment at school. It could also be through the learning environment at home, right? Our kids are also home with us and learning from us. Um, and so schools, you know, they have different classroom cultures, so we can tackle it in terms of like what, what the classroom culture is. And also, at home, um, one of the things that I write a lot about and talk a lot about, um, you know, whenever people want to know about parenting is, you know, how do you get your kids to learn best at home? Well, I advocate for having them learn together, doing what I call connected learning. It's a way of learning through play, through curiosity, through creative thinking, but in a way that your kids can learn from each other. You know, and whether that that is having them read to each other or having them read parts of books or pages, you know, if they're like my I have identical twins, so like they're literally learning at the same time all this material. They're also in the same classroom. So, you know, they're they're just really kind of neck and neck at the same place with um with reading at this moment. That's one of the big things. And so, you know, having them bounce off of each other and um, and as much as possible learning through interactive play and um, and focusing more on that kind of interaction and social emotional um, investment rather than these kind of academic milestones that get you to that point where you can take this you know one of those tests and then the you know next test and the next test and then you're PSATs and then your SATs and then your GREs. And it's like our lives are, we're just, we're so focused on setting them up for acing tests that we sometimes forget when, especially, you know, in our home environment, which we absolutely do have control over. 
most of us have control over that part of it. Like we often take like, oh, they have to do their homework. They have to do this. You know, it's like, these are those moments where they can actually take, get outside of that paradigm and just get into a completely play-based social, emotional learning based kind of way of, of learning together. And that is synergistic. Okay. That is so helpful. You know, I think a lot of us, when we think about you know, all of us want to have quote unquote smart kids. And we think, we think about the environment, we think like having ABCs and numbers around, you know, we don't think about like these bigger picture things, like reducing the stress in our home, thinking about like, how can I reduce the stress for my child in their classroom? You know, I feel like we don't, you know, we think about, okay, what curriculum does the school use? But we don't think about, does this classroom environment reduce stress for children. I think that is like so helpful for us as parents to think about. And also this idea of like, you know, social interaction, which is such a positive experience for uh, most humans is such an important way for us to learn. And, you know, I think a lot of us like kind of, you know, the, the social emotional stuff kind of feels like play and that's not as important as like getting down to the academic work, but it's so important, especially with young children to remember that like the social emotional work is important for building academic skills. Um, and it is a key way that young children learn. Could you talk a little bit more about this concept of neuroplasticity? Because neuroplasticity um, is the idea that the brain is always changing and that responding to the environment. I think it's such an important concept for parents. So can you explain how parents should think about that and how that impacts um, you know, our children's learning? Definitely. So our brains, from the moment we're born, they're just forming these connections. They call them neural networks. And Basically, these connections form every time that we gain new information, gain new skills, um, especially in those early months of life. And then, you know, through early childhood, we're really forming a lot of neural networks. And, um, and as we get into adulthood, we're still doing this. There's still new brain cell growth and all kinds of new um, kind of pathways forming and connections forming. But we also do this thing where we prune back the things we don't need, skill sets, information that we're not using, um, ways of thinking even. You know, we prune that stuff back to make room for even more new stuff. And so the brain is this kind of like thriving um, and growing and changing thing our whole entire lives. It's really important in childhood because that's when we first make these connections, right? So um, that's why people say, like, if you can have your children, like, you know, either learn a language or just have a lot of that social emotional kind of um, uh, interaction, that's a great time. And part of that is, you know, wrapped into how we parent them and, you know, how, how much like care and love and like really unconditional love we give them. It's like all of that is like helping build their brains in these really beautiful ways. Um, and how that really connects to learning and to also to parenting in a way is through establishing their awareness of this through teaching them. One of the things I advocate, um, is, you know, having your kids establish a growth mindset early on. That is just 
having them know about their neuroplasticity. You can do that by reading books about the changing brain, about neuroplasticity. There are actually books that, you know, that are about that very topic. I've read them with my kids. They, I mean, I actually started reading neuroplasticity books with them when they were toddlers. So, you know, it's like they, they really can grasp this. There's all different, you know, levels of of communication about neuroplasticity, but, um, but getting them to have that growth mindset, really establishing that young is helpful because then they see that really like our brains are just hungry for new knowledge. We want new information about our environments. We actually naturally want to improve our situation in life. And if you give them the love and that unconditional love, then they will also want to improve it. Not just because they're trying to be selfish or narcissistic or something, but actually because they want to improve it for everybody, improve it for the family, for, you know, mom and whomever is, you know, there in their lives. Um, And just giving them that sense that you're always growing. It helps them to see that really like we can say like, oh, you need to know this academic stuff because it's valuable to becoming uh, an adult who is a contributing member of society. That's one way of approaching telling our kids that's why they're in school. Another way is just to say, look, this is your chance to get a lot of really interesting information that I'm not giving you and that you're not getting at home. And even better, you get to do it with your friends. So this is really cool. And you get to do it with your teachers who, you know, hopefully love you and who you hopefully feel love for as well. And you know, so just teaching them that they're always learning. And part of that is also um, just teaching them that that knowledge and learning happens at that very edge of what you don't know. So getting them comfortable with seeing that there are always unknowns, there's always uncertainty. And if they can feel good about that and see that that's their goal is to actually reach that limit of what they know, then they will be better at recognizing where they're making mistakes, where they're making errors, and they'll actually learn material with a lot greater facility than if we give them the sense that like, oh, well, you know, you were born this smart and sorry, you know, this is, this is just who you are. You're, you know, and if we tell them like, yeah, that's test that you took, my kids are already getting all these tests that are not even um, supposedly the testing of standardized testing, but they are standardized tests and they're getting them in kindergarten. So it's like, you know, for them to feel like that's just who they are, is this how well they did? You know, it, it, it just pains me to think that they would think that. Luckily, I'm showing them that that's just not the case and that they should they should take all of that with a grain of salt. That's amazing. So I love that idea of talking to our kids about neuroplasticity, you know, talking about the brain is is like a muscle, you know, the more you work it, the stronger it gets and and reading them books to like, you know, fully understand this concept. I think um that really helps children to grasp the idea of growth mindset. Like you said, you know, it's the idea that you know, our intelligence is changeable based on effort and hard work and persistence and um, you know, I think that's such an important concept for young children to learn um, and for parents to really like, you know, accept that this is how our brains work. I have a post I did on Instagram that was actually pretty controversial about why you shouldn't call your children smart. And 
you know, I know we've all slipped up and done it. I've, I know all this research and I still sometimes slip up and do it. And I'm like, how did I do that? Um, but, uh, you know, research finds that cause calling your children smart negatively impacts motivation and persistence, um, and may even make children more likely to cheat. So can you explain, you know, based on the research, why parents should avoid calling children smart or praising their intelligence? Why is that important? Yeah. I mean, it's exactly an example of the kind of old hat notion that you are only as smart as you, as has been revealed through some kind of test. Right. And, um, and that you are, and that your intelligence is fixed. It's something that you were born with. It's something that you, um, were, you know, you're the lucky smart one who, what does that imply about all of the other kids that don't get called smart, right? It just tell it sets, sets your kid up to think I need to compare myself with others who are not smart. I'm the smart one. They're the not smart ones, you know, and it's just absolutely not true. Um, and also, you know, one area of my research is into racial inequality and this is very racialized language. You know, it's unfortunate that in this day and age with all that we know, that there are still um, a lot of educators, a lot of parents, a lot of people in our communities who praise and give that kind of accolade of smartness, um, you know, to kids who are raised as white versus kids who are raised as black and our schools do it and the tests end up doing it as well, you know. So, you know, it's just that kind of way of rewarding kids for being supposedly endowed, you know, genetically endowed as smart is, is really harmful to them. And it, it gets them away from thinking about the growth mindset, thinking about, you know, what they are capable of as they grow and change, not like you are smart end of story, but like, how can you learn more? What are we going to do as we move forward from here? What are the challenges? What don't you know? That's what we want to be telling them or asking them actually. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I love that. You know, focusing on, you know, intelligence is something that's always building. It's something we're all working on, you know, even as adults, it's something that, you know, modeling to them that I'm always learning more. I'm always, you know, trying to improve upon, um, something that you're working on. Um, so, you know, as a parent of three young children yourself, I'm sure as you, you know, as you mentioned, you're doing this research and how has it actually changed your day-to-day of how you act and interact with your children? Um, I definitely, as soon as I started writing this book, I was more concerted about doing the growth mindset work with them and reading the books. And I also had been loosely giving them another thing I write about in reading the intelligence is uh, mindfulness as a way of stress reduction. So that epigenetics piece of it, but also as a way of getting them to tune better into the environment, to learn more from it. And I had already been kind of using different breathing techniques with them. And they're also their, um, their caregivers did that. And also um, they get some of that at, at school and all of that, but um I started to do it a little bit more and to kind of be aware of my own 
sense of, you know, being in the moment and um, reflecting with them and giving them the language and kind of helping them work that muscle so that they could, they could really like get, get outside of that, that, you know, thinking of the past or thinking of the future, but actually thinking like, what is in our present environment that we can learn from? And kids obviously naturally do this. They actually teach us how to do this better. So it's not like, it doesn't take much of a push, but um, definitely as they've moved out of the nice little womb of preschool into that my kindergartners moving into public school and um, and the kind of academic treadmill, they don't get as much of that kind of throughout the day because we actually had them home with us until um, their pre-K year, so their last year of preschool, and so they just you know were with us and. So I, we had kind of a fake homeschool thing that we made, you know, where we just do projects with them for a couple of hours in the morning. And then it was just playtime the rest of the time, you know, unstructured. But, um, but yeah, during that time, they were able to just be themselves, be kids and not even think about milestones <laughs> and achievement and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then now, even though we ourselves would rather be in a system where they didn't even have any reading or writing or um, math until they were a little bit older. We don't have that choice. We're in a great public school system, so we're grateful for what we have, but um, there's a lot of pressure already in kindergarten. And so just working on that mindfulness piece when I have them home, that's something that is, has really been a big thing for me since writing the book. Amazing. Um, my kids also do a lot of um, mindfulness practice at their preschool, and I just think it's so incredible, like what they've learned and and like you said, this being present, being mindful. So being mindful is just being present in the moment. You know, noticing your breathing, and kids kind of do it naturally. It's like it's kind of like life that takes that away from you. Um, so um, just kind of tapping into that natural instinct that they have. Um, do you have any specific books or resources that you use to practice mindfulness or growth mindset with your children? Um, I have to look back and look at the titles. So maybe I'll give them to you and then you can um, put them in the show notes because I, off the yes, top of my head, I, can I can't remember exactly the names of the titles because some of the things that I've um, used have been, you know, like we're starting to phase a little bit out of the preschool toddler stuff and moving it's, I think it's because we have two that are in kindergarten. And so the one who is in preschool is just kind of along for the ride with the, <laughs> with the older ones at this yeah. point, you know? So, I mean, he just wants to be a part of everything that they learn and do. So he's just like trying to count and trying to, you know, trying to read, I mean, but not really reading, of course, you know, but um, yeah. So I'll, I'll look at over the specific titles and give them to you. That would be great. Yes, and I can put those in the show notes. Um, I just have to do a plug for my kids. Preschool teacher wrote a book on um, mindfulness for kids, which has like activity, mindful activities that you can do with your kids. So it's called Mindfulness for Kids by Robin Albertson Wren, and I would really recommend that. Um, and another one of my kids' favorite books on growth mindset is called The Girl Who Never Made Mistakes, um, which is kind of like a funny story about... 
you know, a girl who never makes mistakes and then she makes this huge mistake. And, you know, I just, I love talking to my kids about like the importance of making mistakes. And I, they, they love when I talk about a time that I made a mistake, you know, and just talking through that it's okay to make mistakes. Like this is how we learn. So that can be part of talking about growth mindset. As parents, we, um, you know, how do we advocate for this? You know, you talked a little bit about your kids are in a school system and a lot of us, you know, we only have so much control over our kids' actual education unless you, you know, have the ability and the resources and the desire to homeschool. You know, we don't really have that much control. So what can you do in terms of, um, you know, what can we do as parents within these systems to help, you know, promote some of these ideas that we've been talking about, you know, do you opt out of testing? You know, I know my my um, first grader is doing a ton of testing this week, um, you know, and and she was telling me about how much she hates it, and it was kind of sad. Um, but and, and and I think the teacher is doing her best to make it as engaging as possible. But you know, this is just the reality in most um, educational systems that there's regular testing and. Do you opt out of testing? Do you just talk to your children about the testing? How do we approach this with our children within these school systems that we might not have control over? It's such a such a great question. And I mean, we're in the in it too, because in the state of New Jersey, supposedly you're not standardized testing until you're in the third grade, but actually they're standardized tested in the even before they get to kindergarten. And then they're tested in a bunch of like very low stakes kind of like let's just so-called see where they're at and then figure out you know where how how to teach them through the year um and then test it again at the end of the year and so as like with your daughter who's first grade and you know it's like there's a whole bunch of testing that's going on for all of the younger grade kids right so it's something that you have to deal with from the get-go and for for me, I can't say what each parent should do in their own particular situation, but I can tell you what we're doing, which is that we will opt out of testing as soon as we can. Um, another thing is that I know so many of the um, educators in my community that I talk to, um, teachers and even principals, even you know every everyone that I talk to, pretty much is. Um, almost depressed by the, by the level of testing that they have to do, not happy about it. They don't support, they don't think that's the right way to do things, but they also have to do what the state requires them to do. And so we're in kind of this sort of impasse where almost nobody wants it, but somebody wants it. And who knows, like if they have any connection to, you know, to the particular community that you live in. So um, I am voicing to my kids' teachers that I don't support it and that I don't want it for them, and that I'm just letting them know that I support their critical mindset about it, and that if they need to know or have a parental voice say on the record um, that you know we want to change this, I'm that person. I'm your person. You know. Um, I also am extremely busy with my own work and my own teaching. You know, I'm a teacher too. And so I don't have the time to like do all of the on the premises, 
let me tell you what I think about the school and the school system kind of work that needs to be done. There are parents who don't, you know, who don't work and who probably have a lot more time on their hands to do that kind of thing. I actually have been trying to get rid of standardized tests in, um, in higher education at both of the places that I've worked since, you know, finishing my postdocs in both places. I was, a, you know, main, the main person in my department to say like, you got to get rid of these. And then we got rid of them. So, you know, it's like, yeah, for gra- at the graduate level. Um, and so I'm, I'm definitely like very vocal in my own work about this. Um, in terms of the schools, I just am t- telling the teachers and the principal, you know, like this is how I feel. And so if you need anyone to corroborate your criticalness of this, you know, of this kind of method, I'm your person. One thing that happened um, in the last few days as they've been doing the testing for the third graders and above is that the kids have not had outdoor recess and they've also had a curtailed lunch. So they've come home with full lunch boxes and they've also been out of sorts because they've come home without having run or done any climbing or anything. And already the difference between their preschool forest school life, you know, and this kind of, you know, recess on a one play structure kind of life is it's already really bad for them, you know? So, you know, it's just kind of like now they're just doing absolutely nothing with their bodies. And then they are coming home all kinds of crazy in a sense, you know, and not feeling right. And, and then not having eaten and stuff like that, you know? So it's, my husband was like, I want to say something, but I don't want to be pushy or like make people feel bad because we know that they don't like this either. You know, like nobody is enjoying this. Um, but I think that, that if you feel comfortable, that's the one thing I will advocate for, for others is whether I, you know, while I can't say opt out or don't opt out, we want to opt out. But if you feel comfortable at least saying that you are critical of it, it's going to help more than just having the system just go on with no one ever saying, hey, wait, we don't like this, you know? I love that because instead of, you know, I I feel like that acknowledges that like the teachers probably don't like it either, you know, rather than being like, how dare you do this to our children, to the teachers, like they probably don't like it either and they're just having to respond to, you know, maybe higher level policy that um, they can they can see it themselves that it maybe not is is not optimal for children. Um, so what about grades? You know, I know some schools are kind of changing their policies now in terms of not giving young children grades. So what do you think about grades? And if you do have no control over it, how do you talk to your kids about grades? Yeah, I mean, we haven't had to to go there yet because our kids have gotten progress reports, which we have not shared with them, of course. And, um, or I don't know if that's an, of course, but we have not talked to them at all about evaluations, but I mean, I, when I was in college, my college didn't have grades. And when I was in my postdocs, I did them at Brown university, which is another university that didn't have grades or doesn't have grades. And I am really, really happy with that kind of model of and that that kind of system right so 
I think that we think that everything's going to fall apart if we don't have these numeric ways of identifying how well people are performing. But look at these, you know, it's like if your kid was in a preschool environment and they were learning so much and they were forming all those neural networks and that's without having any grades, you know, think of how much better your kids will feel in terms of stress and, and how much better they'll do if you remove that kind of like, well, we're going to just like, you know, put a number on you at the end of this. And then we're going to decide whether to give you more education or, you know, send you over to this other place where we, you know, don't work so hard with you. One of the things that's really disturbing to me is that in most states, by the time that your children are in public school, if they're in public school, um, those those kind of like standardized tests that they're doing that are not a part of the so-called standardized testing season, they are still being tracked very, like with those very first tests, they're being tracked for gifted education or for some kind of program or some kind of extra advanced, you know, or accelerated learning within their schools. So it's like, if your kid doesn't get a high score from the get-go, they're already going to lose out on this kind of like extra teaching. And I think that that model is just so bereft, you know, it's just really bad for the kids. And to me, grades is part of, part of that. Now I know a lot of educators um, who are like, I don't know what I do without test scores. And I definitely don't know what I do without grades, right? Like grades are like how we communicate and pass the torch to the next teacher and all of this stuff. But if I had it my way, my kids would not be evaluated like that. They would just be doing projects, learning together in that synergistic way. And the teachers would be sensitive to them as individuals, not based on, you know, if they passed some kind of test or not, but rather if they need help with something, they would get extra help. And actually, like one of the things that frustrates me the most about the numerical score-based kind of paradigm that we live in is that it's actually the kids who score lower that need more help. They need more resources, but we always take the kids who are marked as gifted and we always give them more help. So what's up with that? You know, can you imagine if like one of your kids um, got like the gifted treatment and then one of your kids got the like remedial treatment, how unfair and how upset you'd be as a mom, as a parent. It's like, that doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense to me. You don't love one of your kids more. You don't want to give them more resources, better education, right? You want everyone to get the help they need wherever they're at. Yes. So that's, that's so interesting. You know, I think it's, it's like this gifted education, remedial education model actually fits the fixed intelligence, you know, which research finds is not how intelligence actually works. So it's like our educational systems are operating on this idea that intelligence is this fixed thing. And, you know, from kindergarten or even earlier, you're assigned to the gifted track or the remedial track and you do not move tracks, um, you know, and it's like, that's not really how the brain works. That's not how we, you know, understand intelligence. I think that's really interesting. And also the idea that you know, I love your idea that we our goal should be to reduce stress in order to optimize learning. So it's like grades, you know, assigning people to different tracks of education, like this increases stress. And I think all of us, you know, from our own experience can remember that. And even in elementary school and be like, 
stressing about grades, stressing about, you know, what reading group am I in, for example. And, you know, we, you know, I remember being little and being like, you totally know if you're in the higher reading group or the lower reading group, even if the teacher doesn't say it. Um, And it's like, you stress about that and you're like, why am I not in the highest reading group? You know, it's like all of this stuff causes stress in young children, which is then going to get in the way of learning. Um, I think that's such an important reframe for all of us, you know, as parents and for educators too. Finally, I want to talk about how does this apply to neurodiverse children? So um, just for the listeners, neurodiversity is this idea that, you know, all of our brains work in different ways and um, neurodiverse children can include, you know, children with ADHD or autism or really any sort of learning difference. So how does this research apply to these neurodiverse children in particular? I, I hope that it helps for those children to be seen and to be treated better in the classroom and also um, to be valued in a more equal way. And I know that parents love their kids and often feel that, you know, I wish my kid was being valued at for the amazing individual learner that they are. But all too often our schools don't treat our kids that way. They really just like to say, okay, here's this kid, you know, they're having these problems, we're going to put them in this type of classroom, or, you know, here's this other kid, they're doing really well. So we're going to give them this, you know, again, like extra, extra advanced, accelerated kind of learning. And, um, and because we are not attuned to the individuality of each learner, and to the value of each way of learning, we miss how valuable it is to have neurodivergent kids with our, you know, kids who are not labeled as such. And also we are um, less uh, aware of the potential for us to have synergistic learning, all of us together as a community of learners. So I feel like neurodivergent kids are devalued in our present education systems. And I know, again, like so many educators, principals, like administrators who are trying their hardest to kind of give extra help and give extra love and attention to uh, kids who have ADHD, kids who are on the spectrum, kids who are, you know, like have just different ways of learning. Um, But because the system itself isn't set up to even really see those kids as valuable learners, it's, it's like everyone has to just work that much harder to like make that happen. And they have to take time away from all of the other work that they're doing for the school in order to just individually like put, pull out the extra measures to help those students. And, and if the system were less based on these kinds of rigid scores and fixed notions of intelligence and rather we're just seeing all of us as completely unique learners. We're not all the same. We're all different, right? We all have things that we're working towards and all have things that we're a little bit really good at, you know, at this moment, present time, and, you know, things that we're in flex with, right? And things that that we can improve upon. If we all were treating every kid as like, you know, individuals and saying like, oh, you need a little bit of help with this thing and you need a little bit of help with this thing at this very moment, then I think that neurodivergent kids would have a lot easier time getting their needs met. So I really want this new way of 
um, defining intelligence that I'm offering, this seeing intelligence as learning from our environments, I am hoping that that will help neurodivergent kids get seen and really render, render them visible so that people can, you know, the whole community and all of their, you know, school, classroom, education kind of systems can, can change and, and conform to a, a new way of, of treating all of us as diverse, right? Neurodivergent it is a kind of difficult word for us because it implies that like there's a norm and that there's a pathological divergence from the norm. Like we are all diverse, neurodiverse, right? Like we are all diverse. That's to me is like where I want us to go with this. That, that I love that conceptualization. I feel like that helps parents of all children, you know, thinking of all of our brains as neurodiverse and rather than being like, is my kid smart or not smart? Focusing on what, you know, seeing your child for their unique qualities and what are their individual strengths that, you know, I can celebrate and I can encourage and, and seeing it as, you know, what are they actually, how do they learn from their unique environment? Not, you know, based on, you know, a test score, you know, these, these, those measures seems like so inadequate when you think about what, you know, intelligence and learning really is. So I think that's so helpful for all of us as parents to, you know, recognize our children's individual strengths and see those rather than focusing on like, are they smart? Are they not smart? Yes, exactly. Um, So this has been so just beyond fascinating and I feel like we could keep talking about this forever. Um, But I want to wrap up because I know um, we, all of our listeners are busy parents. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you just tell parents, um, if they want more information about some of your ideas, where can they find more? Um, where can they find more information about you if they're interested? Definitely. You can go to my website, drrenabliss.com. You can also follow me on socials, any of the socials. Um, and I'm usually at Dr. Bliss, um with no you know, punctuation. Um, I think one of maybe Twitter would be Dr. Bliss, but basically Dr. Bliss. just, you know, you'll find me all around. If you go to my website, you'll definitely see, you know, links to all of that. And yeah, the book itself, Rethinking Intelligence, um, you can get it at any bookstore. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at the HarperCollins website. Like, you know, that's another way to kind of get into all of this material that I've been sharing in these ideas. But yeah, it's been really, really a pleasure being here with you and talking to you. It's, it's really, you know, being a parent is really for me the most magical and important part of my life. And so this is the kind of, this is that kind of place where I want all of this science and knowledge and all of this, you know, kind of experience to, to go towards parenting. It's really my, my deepest love and priority. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And I think this research is so applicable to parents and can really help us to, you know, reframe how we think about learning and intelligence and how we see our kids. And I think this is so helpful. So thank you so much for being here. Um, And to all the listeners, please tune in next week to the Parenting Translator podcast for more research-backed tips for parents.
Parenting Translator is a nonprofit organization, so all of these podcasts and the information they provide are given to you for free. If you would like to support our work, please subscribe to this podcast and rate and review it. Thank you so much.